0: Men today have a strange problem. Many of them are just too nice to attract women and succeed in the world. Dr. Robert Glover helps them fix that. Not so they can become sociopaths or jerks, but so that they can become confident, assertive grown-ups who don't have to resort to manipulation or people pleasing to get their needs met, which is actually what many nice guys don't like to admit about themselves. In this podcast, we discuss how almost every modern man, including me, has some nice guy tendencies, how do you can identify those tendencies and distinguish them from your real virtues, and how to become a man that women are deeply attracted to, and more importantly, that knows and respects yourself. I have a lot of friends that I don't think would have identified as nice guys, and I wish that they could, and I want to start by being like, what? is a nice guy? How can people identify it in themselves? And what are the things that most guys will go, oh, oh I see that in myself? Well, let me give you the, the little elevator pitch about you know the, the, mm-hmm. the basic nice guy
1: thing. A nice guy is a man, could be a woman, but I wrote a book for men because there's a lot of books on codependency for women. But it's a guy who at an early age inaccurately internalized life events as having to do something with him. And he internalized a belief, I'm not okay. Uh, He might not have intellectualized it, but emotionally internalized it. And has gone through life trying to become, number one, what he believes other people want him to be, so he can be liked and loved and get his needs met, and number two, hiding anything from people that he thinks might get a negative reaction from them. Usually his needs, his wants, his sexuality, those are the things that we typically hide away. and. The nice guy usually is not even aware that he has this paradigm, this roadmap, this way of navigating the world. It it, it got internalized often at such an early age that when we hit adolescence and now all of a sudden we're, we're interested in the opposite sex, however we define that, and we want, we want to be liked and loved and, you know, people think well of us, it gets more solidified. Well, how, how, do, I, how do I do that? How do I get people to notice me? How do I get people to like me? And so we just do more of that paradigm. And then by the time we reach young adulthood, it's pretty well, you know, woven into the the fabric of our personality. And we don't realize it. Now, in No More Mr. Nice Guy, I talk about two types of nice guy. When I first started working with nice guys, I, I started with me. And I thought, well, maybe they're all like me. And because mm. I, I, I would tell you, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest people you ever meet. How come everybody isn't like me? How come everybody isn't considerate and conflict avoidant and giving and generous? And my, that belief I had that I wasn't good enough, the term for that is called toxic shame. I pushed mm. that so far down inside of me. I wasn't conscious of it. I, I just thought I did everything right. I'm a good guy. Everybody should just recognize that and love me and like me and meet my needs and think well of me and approve of me. When I started working with nice guys, I thought everybody was like that, at least all the men I worked with. Then I found out there's a second kind of nice guy that I call the I'm so bad nice guy. This is the nice guy who at an early age, maybe because of ADHD, alcoholic family, learning disorders, physical abuse, started acting out at an early age, getting in trouble, getting scolded, punished, sent to the principal's office, kicked out of school, starts doing drugs and alcohol at an early age, maybe sex, maybe just kind of out of control. And this usually goes into adulthood till maybe they join the military or get married or find Jesus or have a kid. And they go, I got to get my life under control. And then they adopt the nice guy strategy. I'll give to get. Mm -hmm. I'll be generous. I'll be different from other men. I'll try to please people. I'll, I'll, I'll suppress my needs and wants. But these guys, their toxic shame's right up to the surface. And they believe it's only a matter of time till people find out they really are that, you know, that fucked up loser. And whereas I'm so good, nice guy, you know, the shame is so deep. We will defend, you know, our niceness to the death not realizing we're trying to be nice because we don't really feel like we're good enough deep inside. So this is kind of how it, you know, we can go deeper into how this kind of manifests in children and comes into adulthood, how it tends to show up most often is giving to get typically in the form of three, what I call covert contracts, covert contract. Number one is that if I'm a good guy, I'll be liked and loved. And typically uh, nice guys can attach and the women who I do nice things for, or the men who I do nice things for depending, will wanna have sex with me. And so nice guys can be you know, pretty manipulative and passive aggressive when that doesn't work out. Second covert contract of nice guys, is, oh, there goes the balloons. I love it. I love the hand motion that
0: sets off the balloons and fireworks. The second covert contract is. the,
1: the, The best one, I was on a call. Uh, for, for one of my brotherhood calls for Integration Nation, talking about the death of my father. And oh I my put my goodness. hands up and fireworks went off behind me. You know, thank thank you. Thank you, Mac. Thank you. We're not yeah. on Zoom. I can't believe it. I don't know how to turn it off on this app, but I figured it's, out Zoom. It's perfect. So, it's the perfect. The balloons go up. Maybe we'll get confetti in a minute. Maybe maybe uh, yeah. that thumbs up will go up. So covert contract number two. Are, are two, mm. two, 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 two going to go up? So covert contract number two is that if I read other people's minds and give them what they want and need without them having to ask, then they will read my mind and give me what Mm -hmm. I want without me having to ask. Covert contract number three, is that if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth problem-free life. So Mm -hmm. that's where you can, you know, people listening to this, if they wanna check in, am I a nice guy? Check in with those three things. Uh, Do I try to be good? Do I think that will make people like me and appreciate me and make me different from other men? Do I think is that is that my nice guy seduction? How I get, you know, the girls or guys to like me and want to get naked with me because I've listened to them talk about the problems, I've paid their car payment, I'm different from other guys. Second thing, do you tend to feel frustrated because you seem to give more than anybody else gives back? Do most of your friends, associates, family members take a lot and not give a lot back to you? And that third thing, you keep thinking, yeah, I I think, I think I did it right. You know, how come no matter how good I do everything, I still have problems and I still don't get that promotion and the girls still don't like me. And you know, that Peter Panish, everything should go well. And Mm -hmm. so because of the covert contracts, nice guys are often anything but nice. They're often really frustrated, resentful, be passive aggressive, can be rageful when things don't go the way they thought they should cuz hey I'm the scorekeeper I kept my side of the covert contract how come yeah. you haven't kept your side of the covert contract and so mm. when that doesn't work so well nice guys have this tendency to double down on that same you know plan and do more of it and get more frustrated more resentful more passive aggressive or you know a lot of men I work with just end up kind of withdrawing and just feeling victimized and and you know yeah. uh, you know getting on the internet and writing about how evil women are or things like that, because, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, they should be giving me what I want. I did everything right.
0: Yeah. I see myself an ass. And this is the thing I think at the time is I didn't identify with the resentfulist, though. I can see how it cropped up in some areas of my life. The thing that really, as I was rereading, it stuck with me was one obsession with goodness. I was a philosophy major <laughs> and my question was what is good? How do I be good? You know, like it was such a deeply important question to me. Two was a validation seeking from women. Like it became incredibly important for me, not just to have one woman like me, but to have like, I needed to learn how to dance, do jujitsu, sing a song, write a poem, fight a fight. Like I needed to be the Marlborough man, not even the uh, Renaissance <laughs> man go. who could do anything and attract anyone. Renaissance, that ma- was Renaissance the- man on a horse, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, just a and, strong
1: uh, need for, for that. And that's a really strong dynamic in Nice Guys is that Mm -hmm. even with women, we don't have any intention to having sex with. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we have to have their approval. They get that look on their face. If they look a little disgusted or they look disapproving of us, that triggers a a pretty strong visceral emotional response in in many nice guys.
0: Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating because I want to touch on this. So let's talk about the childhood roots of where this comes from because I think that a lot of people deeply, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, in reinterpreting, revisiting my childhood experiences and re-narrating some of that story, I have grown tremendously. I've encountered pain that I hadn't known was there, and I've been able to address it sincerely so that it doesn't crop up in unconscious ways and reactivity in my, in my life today. So where does this come from in childhood? Okay. Um, this is a
1: broad question, but we'll narrow it down. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, I think a lot of nice guys have, have a naturally easygoing temperament. I think that's my nature. Um, my mother at times would tell women I was dating, this as an adult, she would tell the women, mm. Bobby never did like conflict. And I'm thinking, who the fuck likes conflict? Why, <laughs> that seems like a weird thing to say, you know, to, to point out, I, but I seem to be attracted and marry women that like conflict. I tease my wife mm. all the time, you love to fight. You know, you 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 go looking for a fight. She goes, no I don't. Yeah, you do. So. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather just, can't we just talk about this and resolve it? You know, why, why do we have to have a lot of drama to get this done? I think I've, I've always been fairly just kind of generous and, and, and caring. I think that's just my nature. Now, what happens to every child is we take the, our natural inherent temperament. And, you know, if you've had kids or had more than one kid, you see that kids do pop out with a, a temperament of their own. You know, not every little baby pops out this tabla rasa and their personality gets written on them. Children all have their own temperament. Now, then nature, you know, an environment does start writing on top of that, but how we interact with our life events is often determined by our inherent temperament. So every child begins, comes into this world completely dependent, needy, helpless, vulnerable, and completely dependent on their caregivers to meet their needs and keep them safe and protect them and nurture them to grow Mm -hmm. and because we are completely needy and helpless and dependent we have lots of painful uncomfortable experiences and we're hungry and nobody feeds us we have a bellyache and nobody can figure it out we have an earache or we poop in our diapers and nobody changes it we're cold and nobody wraps us up every one of those uncomfortable experiences I mean, children are all just a bundle of feelings. They just feel it to the core of their being. And that, that feeling state triggers a survival reaction in every child. That's true of every human being. And mm-hmm. when we experience uncomfortable feelings with a very underdeveloped, immature mind and nervous system, we try to do two things to make those feelings go away. So maybe a child sucks their thumb. I, I sucked my thumb till I started kindergarten. Maybe I was mm-hmm. trying to you know deal with uncomfortable feelings. The child might eat, they might cry, They might stop eating, they may not cry. They may smile, right. they may withdraw. Every child will begin to do things to try to alleviate those uncomfortable feelings. Now they don't know that's what they're doing, so we can't think about this. Mm-hmm. Our a reasoning part of our brain doesn't come online till much after, you know, a few yeah. years after we're born. And, and guys, you probably know this, it doesn't fully develop to about 25 years old. So, mm-hmm. this is not a reasoned thing. It's an, it's an emotional reactive thing driven by a part of our brain down here in the brainstem called the amygdala. So, it's, that's our fight, flight, freeze mechanism. So, one thing every child's trying to do is try to alleviate the uncomfortable feelings in the here and now. The second thing that they do is to try to prevent them from occurring again in the future. Again, usually just like you know, maybe a less mature than you have a dog, I have a dog, our dogs learned how to try to prevent uncomfortable feelings from happening. But they can't reason it out, you know, like an adult can. That's what children are doing with a a very mature brain, trying to figure out how to make this not happen again. Now, I mentioned before that toxic shame, every child is narcissistic by nature. So they're going to internalize, I'm the cause of these uncomfortable feelings. There's something now this isn't words, it's not pictures is an emotional state that gets internalized here right? that becomes our emotional operating system that's our machine language that's the, the dos as it used to be with microsoft machines that runs the machine the computer of the brain and then the apps of life get loaded on top of that mm-hmm. so every person grows up trying to manage uncomfortable feelings some become nice guys nice girls some become angry some become controlling some you know eat a lot some you know suck their thumb a lot we 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 all do things to try to deal with those uncomfortable feelings and prevent them happening again nice guy syndrome is just one of many different ways to try to manage uncomfortable feelings and of course to be liked and loved and get our needs met and feel valuable and connected all of that gives put into a paradigm, a roadmap, and we all have them, the roadmap that that I had was, I'll be a nice guy. Uh, I'll be different from my father, different from all the other men I hear women complain about. Uh, I'll listen to my mom talk about her problems and complain about my dad. Uh, I'll, I'll be generous. I'll be kind. I'll be giving. I'll be, you know, I I I won't argue, I won't be mean, I won't hurt people. You know, that's what I thought. That will help me be liked and loved, and get my needs met, and not have to feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable feelings. There's many other ways of doing it. Uh, none of them work. Yeah. <laughs> they kind they <laughs> kind of work a little bit when well, maybe when you're a kid because you got nothing else to go on. But once we we go through adolescence, as I mentioned, and they get solidified, and then we bring them into adulthood, they're just wired into our unconscious. It's kind of kind of the Jungian thing until we make the unconscious conscious. It'll rule our life and we'll call it fate. So we're just walking around thinking, this is how the world works. And this is, you know, how, how you interact with the world. And it could be that on one hand, we're being aggressive and dominating, trying to get it to work. On the other hand, we're being submissive and manipulative and passive, trying to get it.
0: Yeah, I found myself uh, on doing both of them in different situations, and one one was coded towards this reminds me of dad, fight, (laughs) you know, and the other was this reminds me of mom, be supportive, be a helper, be a hero. Yeah. And uh, I think that's part of what confused me when I was reading the book is like, yeah, but there's areas of my life where I'm doing the opposite of this. And it was in coming through with a more nuanced, finer, like, okay, well, how do I how do I address intimacy when I'm really feeling vulnerable? It's, oh, this this calls out my nice guy. And okay, how do I address, yeah. you know, conflict sometimes with other men who are not in my tribe? Well, in this case, I'm a fighter. Like I will argue and uh, not be so generous <laughs> and kind and giving.
1: And And, you know, the funny thing is, is that, you, you, your your experience is not uncommon to have some areas mm-hmm. where your nice guy patterns show up more prominently, and other areas mm-hmm. not. I, um, I I worked with a, a woman years ago. She met her husband because he was a police officer, and she was a dispatcher mm-hmm. for the police department. And she said she fell in love with the, the police officer, and you know yeah. that that you know he, he was strong, he was powerful, he was assertive, and then they got married. And then he'd come home and take off his uniform and he'd be a total nice guy, a total wuss. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't make a decision, he wouldn't lead. She said, I have to go on ride-alongs with them in, his, in this cop car to get to see the man I fell in love with. So wow. here was a guy in this context, is totally, and, and not necessarily the other extreme of the nice guy, not that he was an asshole. He, was, he, was, yeah, he yeah. was an assertive guy. At home, he just handed the control over to her, whatever you want, dear, you know, and, and she goes, I don't want that. I want you to make decisions <laughs> and let, you know, give me a choice.
0: I really relate to that. You know, it's funny because I, I see myself uh, the way I feel that there is a thing. And I'm wondering if you have this with your clients where early in a relationship, I am uh, tough. I'm like a, a stallion. I'm a Mustang. I'm tough to break. And I think that does attract a type of woman does. who's like, does. I want this one who is untamable." And I am willing to stick around for long enough in order to tame them. And then I'm now I'm in a six year relationship and I've seen this pattern play out of like the intimacy is high, but the excitement gets low because that wildness has been, uh, tamed out of me. And it's only now that I'm really trying to recapture. Okay. How can I, can I have both intimacy and thrill? Can I, you know, and I'm curious if, if you have thoughts. on that. <laughs> I do. Good luck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, could come, look,
1: I, come, I can come at this from a few different ways. Um, yeah. I, I've, I've got a good buddy, um, uh, Dr. Sean T. Smith, that, that wrote a book, uh, mm-hmm. The Tactical Guide to Women, and just wrote another one called Gatekeeper. And he, and he talks to men about being really conscious of the kind of women you pick and bring into your life because there's, sure. there's a cost, right? There's an investment. And, and the kind of the premise of Gatekeeper is that don't, don't trade your purpose for romance oh, you know, she's hot, she's fun, she's this, blah. And then, you know, all of a sudden we get her into our life and now she, you know, she becomes a drama queen and an anchor. And now we're not pursuing our purpose anymore because, oh, she wants this from us. So he makes a comment in, in that tactical guide to women. He said, you can't get the calm, easy going, easy to get along with woman and the hot and crazy keeps everything fired up. You, you can't, that doesn't come packaged in the same woman. He says, you really kind of got to lean one way or the other. Uh, another really good book, um, mating in captivity by, uh, yeah. uh, Esther, uh, Esther Perrell. Perrell. she basically the basic premise is, and I, I may not be getting it a hundred percent right, but basically the more intimate you become, i.e. the more known you become by the part, by a partner, the less excitement, anticipation unknown uncertainty Mm -hmm. you know there's less of that and so you know we've got this kind of dilemma there how do we really become intimate with another person and then with us my definition of intimacy is knowing self and being known by another so that means Mm -hmm. they know the depth of who we are you know the depth of who they are and that's a growing process over time how do we have that kind of intimacy and depth of connection where we just truly value this person for who they are? And have that kind of and, intensi- int- you know, <laughs> just have, um intensity and and you know, mm-hmm. never know, you know, what
0: the, not, the knowing. not knowing. Yeah, yeah. And
1: yeah. I, the best way I found is that, for example, my, my my wife Lupita, I mentioned I met her in Mexico and we've been married seven and a half years, is a really strong woman. And she grew up eight out of ten kids of poverty, Guadalajara, Mexico. So she's been through just toughness, roughness. You know, she's she's ready for a fight. She she's a gym rat. She works out two hours a day. She's done my She's done kickboxing. Mm-hmm. And and she just, you know, she she just loves that intensity. And That's not me. I'm kind of like, you know, let's just talk things out. Let's just be calm. What I do teach is something that I call positive emotional tension. And what you were talking about early in a relationship, there's usually lots of emotional tension when two people meet and, you know, we've got that attraction and the sparks going. Now, here's what I teach is that in general, women have to experience emotional tension to feel attraction, arousal, and attachment to a man and stay attached to him over time. They need it. It's, it's the drama. Watch women with their girlfriends. Constant drama, constant this, constant, you know, gossiping, backbiting, hierarchies, all that stuff that goes on with the feminine. And, and we guys, we don't tend to like emotional drama. Our, where we go for emotional drama, our sporting events, our action flicks, mm-hmm. all of it. time clock on them right? We know Mm -hmm. that even baseball, they got clocks in baseball now. So where we go to get our tension, we know it's going to end in two hours and that's it. Then we can relax and do nothing and not be bothered. So what happens over time in most relationships, even the guys that were pretty good at creating the emotional tension early in the relationship, you know a little bit of surprise a little bit of can't tie him down can't tame him Mm -hmm. uncertainty and anticipation are two powerful creators of emotional tension in women yeah he loves me he loves me not he loves i don't know is he going to call me back is he going to text me is he seeing somebody else i don't know all of that keeps things fiery but then Mm -hmm. as you become more predictable you know she knows you better she knows what you're really about she knows what you're really up to and now that you've gotten more comfortable with the relationship and you're focusing more on your work you know more on these things that require your time and attention and you don't want as much tension in your life you you find the quick fixes how do we just get this resolved how do we just get it done yeah what do you want to do for dinner tonight you know there's less of the uh, and that's just that's just kind of a natural thing that happens over time so Mm -hmm. i i do teach men i have a course on it and it's actually a book i'm writing now on positive emotional tension is how men can create that emotional tension going in a relationship. Because I tell guys, if you don't create what I call PET, positive emotional tension, she'll create NET, negative emotional tension. She doesn't care. She doesn't care if it feels good to you or not. She just has to have emotional tension. So she might pick a fight with you. She might accuse you of something you haven't done. She might say, who are you chatting with on your phone? You know, she might, you know, anything to get you to react. And as soon as you're in react mode, there's tension. She got what she wanted. Now, sometimes it leads to, you know, all right, some, some good hot sex that follows it. Most of the time, it just leads to hurt feelings. And why is this woman acting so crazy all the time? Mm. So one of the things you have to do as the default, I assume, default masculine pole in the relationship is be conscious of her need for surprise, uncertainty, unpredictability, while still being you, right? To still being a dependable, predictable guy, and and it, it can be as simple as one of the things that I started doing, I don't know, well 15 years ago. A woman taught me this: is I tell every woman I meet, "Wait, I'll open your door for you." So just the fact that they wait to get in and out of the car, I do it with my mother, I do it with my granddaughter, I do it with every woman I've dated. My son does it with his mom. He does it with his girlfriend. You know, tell the woman to wait. That's you creating a masculine pole, and then they surrender into the feminine pole. They wait for you to open the door. That creates an emotional tension, a, a polarity between the two of you. I see so many men and women walking. the men and women don't walk next to each other. They get to the car. The guy just walks over and gets in on his side. The woman gets up. I'm watching that go. How boring. Those two are probably bored to death with each other. And then when my wife and I got back from camping, this is about a year or two ago, we went to pick up some pizza and we're walking out from the pizza place. And I opened her, her door, which I always do on the car. She gets in and these two kind of rough guys walk they had a big jacked up pickup and they come walking up. You don't see that every day. What? What? And and they go, man, opening the door for his woman, and they they go like that, like how cool is that? (laughs) You know. So that little thing creates a polarity. You're Mm -hmm. leading, they're submitting, and now all of a sudden that you can expand on that kind of polarity of of how you how you set the tone and lead.
0: I would love to chat about this um, because I, you know, I read many years ago "Way of the Superior Man" by David Dida, which you might be familiar with, about masculine and feminine polarity. And I have to admit, I find I deeply resist the call to, for instance, open a door or do that, and have encouraged. I I tend to pick very feminine Mm -hmm. women, Um, and I can see, you know, the the apparent dynamic of well, this makes it less exciting, and there's less difference. But I have been at times. frustrated by the lack of masculine container that a partner that i've chosen you know because i've picked them they're very yeah. feminine has so for instance why, why don't like, they pay their bills why don't they balance their checkbook
1: why don't they check I, the I, air <laughs> in the tire
0: yeah. so i you know i've i've, tr- I've made way more money and i've paid for most of the things i've done and that's all fine but there's a um there's a level of emotional groundedness and containment that is has not been common and it's only in my current relationship that yeah. i'm like i don't want to provide all of the masculine containment, and in fact, I feel like I've sort of gotten more in touch with my inner feminine, yep. which means I need less intense external feminine in order to feel balanced in my life. <laughs> I don't know if that's something that you've seen in clients, but yeah, so that I, I just uh, I would love to hear more about this because i I am early in the stages of what be, of what might be a very long relationship and do want it to be exciting and do want it to be intimately connected and uh if that means i have to open doors i will but (laughs) run me through just run me through it. (laughs) there's no have to to, do this okay
1: (laughs) you know mostly i encourage people to be themselves you know be who you Mm -hmm. are you know you can go anywhere on the internet you know it doesn't matter if you're going to relationship experts dating experts will be this do this be that i'm not a big fan of you know uh, all the tips and hacks you know i'm really a big Mm -hmm. fan of being yourself and Mm -hmm. you know uh, you and I will have a good time connecting with each other if we're just being ourselves, not trying to be somebody yeah. other than who we are. Now, kind of going back to that data model of, of masculine, feminine polarity. Yeah, I've read Wave man, too many times, mm-hmm. uh, been to Data David workshops, worked with a coach who's trained with David data, data. So really familiar with the background. I don't I I don't agree with everything that he says, but I do like a lot of his models. So let me kind of break it down the way I break it down. We, we've all got a masculine and feminine energetic side. And, and, you know, most men tend to be more masculine than feminine, but that's a generalization. Most women tend to be more feminine than masculine. Another generalization. Now just accept them for generalizations. Sure. Culture, especially in the last 50, 60 years, has tried to take a lot of the, out of, the of the masculine out of boys.
0: Um, and can you, can you define them really quickly? So like what are masculine and feminine in this I'm going to break
1: it down how I define it, not necessarily how data might mm-hmm. define it. I break it sure. down simply. Masculine does. Feminine is done too. Masculine is penetrating. Feminine is penetrating. Okay. And it, it, it fits with the yin and the yang model, you know, the, the black and white you know, thing that, like, that we've all seen. And, and that the masculine part of ourselves is the doer part in the world. It's out penetrating the world. It's getting the stuff done. The feminine part about ourselves is is the receptive part of ourselves. It's the part that, that seeks connection and nurturing and the flow of love. And so we most of us have some balance of that masculine feminine. Most of us are a little bit more than one than the other, some a lot more than one than the other. And a lot of the nice guys I work with um, do have a pretty strong feminine side. I do. You know, I I, I would identify as having a pretty strong fe- I, I I like to be appreciated. I like the flow of love. I like connectedness. You know, I I, I like clothes. I like color. You know, so I I, I would identify in the, in that feminine way. Now, I, I'm in spite of that, having that strong feminine side. Do I love sitting around listening to women gossip? No, drives me crazy. Can't do it uh would i rather be at my computer getting things done yeah love it i i i love being creative and putting stuff out in the world so i do i do have that masculine side but as i said culturally cultures worked a lot to pull that masculine side out of men we're still they're still working at it really hard calling almost anything that men do that someone doesn't like toxic masculine In the, I grew up during the angry feminism of the '60s and '70s. That every man's a rapist, and erections a sign of aggression. The best, Mm. the best man for the job's a woman. You know, oh, there goes the thumbs up.
0: There (laughs) it is. is. (laughs) Best man for the job. There we go. (laughs) I knew that would happen. Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter.
1: (laughs) And and you know, even in in the child development courses I had in grad school back in the '80s, they were teaching, which was a, a, a tenet of feminism it's still pretty strong, It's being taught in the schools, that there is no gender. Uh, I had one guy tell me there's as many, we teach our kids there's as many genders as there are people on the planet. Um, I think that's more confusing than helpful to little children. And, and so what, what I was taught is that gender is a social construct imposed on children by society. We give boys trucks, so of course they play with trucks. We give girls dolls, so of course they play with dolls. No evidence. To back any of that up, no scientific study, the opposite is actually true. In general, little boys, little girls are gravi- do gravitate towards different, different activities and different toys. They, they just do. There's enough studies to substantiate that. But the, the, the rule of thumb was, I have taught in grad school, is that everything that boys do that's competitive is wrong or bad, and everything that girls do that's cooperative is good, even while they're saying there is no unique genders, you know, boy and girl, Mm. even though they they were saying the cooperative stuff is good, the the competitive stuff is bad. So this is kind of in our educational system where little boys go to school and they hear about toxic masculine in school and, and, you know, basically to to be passive. And so Mm -hmm. And, you know, this has been going on a while. I I heard the same stuff growing up. Don't be like your dad. Don't be like other men. Don't be like those assholes that only want sex. You know, so everything that kind of was masculine uh, got domesticated out. Now, at the same time, uh, the, the women who might be more feminine than masculine in general have been told since they were little, don't be dependent on a man. Never need a man. Don't have children. Go get a career. Go, you know, this, excel at this. They've been taught to do all, all the while. You know, feminism was saying the doing of masculine is bad. Girls have been, you know, told to go be that way. So a lot of women have taken on a fairly masculine role. Now I know when, when is an example of this. When when my book Normal Mister Nice Guy got published, two thousand and three in hardcover, I went back to New York, met with my publisher with, with, my, with my agent, and the, the, the editor of my book, working for Barnes and Noble, woman in her mid thirties, an attorney husband. We went out to dinner with another couple of their friends of theirs, both professionals, man and woman. And both women were talking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to have a family. I'm ready to have kids. I, I don't know that, you know, I want to keep working like I'm working. And so here was two women, New York City, you know, three of them had never driven a car because they live in New York. So, you know, this is, you know, the pinnacle of, of you know, correctness. And they're going, no, nah, I don't think I want a career so much. I think I want kids. And now I, I, every now and then I'll see something come up on social media, social media of my editor. I haven't talked to her in years, pictures of her with her three kids, you know? Mm-hmm. So the women have been told, you're supposed to be more masculine all the while being told masculinity, <laughs> everything about masculine is toxic. So I think luckily, fortunately, we're heading back to a healthier space, yeah. not the extreme of the, you know, the evil patriarchy and not the extreme of, you know, uh, where we've been, where everything men do is evil, but we've all got masculine and feminine energies about us. The more we can be more conscious of what those are in us, what's a part of you that likes to do, that likes to get things done, that likes to move things forward, that likes to, to be masterful. Those are masculine traits. What's a part of you that is feminine? That likes the connection that likes the approval that likes to be loved on that likes to be touched that likes to just have you know peace in nature and and, you know have your senses fed that's the feminine Mm -hmm. your partner is going to have a masculine and feminine traits about her too just like I said, my wife, she can get shit done like nobody's business. I call her my mafiosa. This morning, I heard her screaming at the car mechanic because he didn't tell her that we we're going to have to buy, you know, a $1,500 part for the transmission and just didn't answer her calls for two weeks. You know, so she gets shit done. And I love that about her, but she's also got this feminine side. I have to tell her, quit buying clothes. I can't build you more closets. I can't build you, you know, she loves shoes. She loves clothes. She loves being beautiful. She loves being sexy. She loves, you know, being desired by me. That's her, her feminine mm-hmm. side. So part of your masculine leadership is how do you honor both in yourself, your masculine, your need to get things done, your feminine, your need for connection and flow of love, and how do you also support your partner? And also- yeah. The area she wants to feel masterful and and to be the doer and get things done, but also her feminine that wants to be led, that wants to be done to, that wants to be open, that wants to be penetrated deeply by you, physically, emotionally, sexually.
0: There's something here that I think is interesting because it's… I hear influencers on the web that are talking about, you know, you have to hold a masculine frame and don't show her your vulnerability, don't show her your weakness, women. And and it's always because women don't like that, which is like, wait a second. So I'm going to choose who I am and how I express myself in a relationship based on making her happy to see if she likes it. It's like, that is actually the opposite of what we're talking about. So I appreciate what you just said about like, part of holding the masculine frame is being sincere about the ways in which you want to express that feminine side and the ways in which you would like to receive and the ways in which you would like to relax. Um, And that's, that's something that I've been coming to, which is, I don't know whether it's the car door or what, but there's absolutely ways in which I would like to receive more in my relationships. And I, as a recovering nice guy in some aspects that's been hard for me to yeah. do it's tough for me to sit back and receive well, and that uh, might be a good place yeah. to go to work then
1: you know now we'll, we'll do a little yeah. therapy with you here, here,
0: here. <laughs> i would love you to. know
1: <laughs> going back to the covert contracts of nice, uh, nice guy syndrome that covert contract number two. Oh, there goes thumbs up again it loves the second covert yeah, contract there you go. is that if i do it left hand it will so <laughs> Is it, if I you know read other people's minds and meet their needs without them having to ask, they'll do the same for me. Now, part mm-hmm. of the problem is that nice guys tend to not surround themselves with people who actually are all that well equipped helping them meet their needs. If you're yep. going out picking people who seem to have needs that you can help with, right? Because you get validation and, and and meaning from that. I love watching your dogs romping around on the couch behind <laughs> you. Know, if you're surrounding yourself with people that that you pick because they kind of need fixing, well, they're probably never going to get to that place where they're, you know, good at helping you get your needs met. The second mm-hmm. problem is, is most of us are terrible receivers. Is it, it makes us feel guilty, like we're doing something wrong if somebody gets yeah. to us. And this, you know, I've, I've worked around that, this issue a lot with nice guys and, and myself. Nice guys didn't feel like we're bad for having needs. We're going to be in trouble. We now owe people something. Uh, yeah. They're going to a price to pay. My, my second wife, who I was married to when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, she used to say, you're impossible to give to. Every time I try to give something to you, you know, you, I, I never know if you really like it, and you turn around and give me something right back. She goes, let mm. me just give to you. And, and so that was a practice. I was, I was comfortable giving. In fact, I had to go through a one, I went on a one-year moratorium, this is years ago, where I could not give anything to anybody except myself.
0: Wow. Just to me. That's powerful. That's really powerful. I, I might need to do something like that. Every time, time I had the
1: impulse, like, oh, they would like that. Or, I could do that. No, mm. I had to do it for me. And then I had to go tell on myself as well. I had to go tell my partner, yeah. oh, I was going to do this for you, but so mm-hmm. I, I did this for me. When I, got to be, mm. when I got divorced in my late 40s and became single, I got out in the dating world and quickly realized women wanted to do things for me. And it's kind of like, I'm pretty self-sufficient. And you know, I, 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 you know, I make my own money. I, I can start my own life. I can get things done. And women would say, well, what can I do for you? You don't seem to need me. I'd say, well, treat me well and make my world beautiful. Yeah. You know, women kind of liked hearing that, but then when they try to treat me well and make my world beautiful, I, I, I I'd have, I, you know, I'd, I'd be like this. Cause I, I dated one woman, for example, I met her when she sold me shoes at Nordstrom. So she always worked in retail fashion sale. So one time she came over to my apartment and I had some clean laundry out on my couch and she started folding my laundry. I said, don't do that. Don't do that. She goes, I like doing it. I said, I'm good at it. And she said, I'll leave it here on your bed stacked. And I said, I won't put it away for you. I said, I'm not going to put it away either. I'm going to leave it stacked just like that as a reminder that somebody loves me, right? You came over and folded yeah. my laundry. So I actually consciously started leaving my clean laundry on my couch, because if I didn't, she'd get mad at, why didn't you leave your laundry for me to fold? I yeah. had to start consciously letting people do things for me. Sexually, you know, women, you know, they take pride in you know, their sexual prowess. And I go, oh, no, 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 let me focus on you. And I thought, I'm robbing yeah. them of their pleasure. When I met my wife, Lupita, she loves to do things for me. i will be taking the garbage out, just carrying the garbage from the kitchen, you know, out to to the front sidewalk. It's all 30 feet. I have to go through a door and a gate. And she goes, do you need help? I said, I got it. Of course, I don't need any help. (laughs) It's just a bag of garbage. I had to start saying, yeah, come help me. Because I didn't really need her help, but she just wanted to accompany me. And that was her way of connecting with me. You know, I met her because she was a massage therapist. I was walking down a oh, street great. in Puerto Vallarta, and she said, Hola, senor, want a massage.
0: <laughs> and I said,
1: no, I, cabez manana. And thought, I liked her voice. So I went back and got a massage and started dating about six months later and got married a couple of years after that. She complains that I don't let her give me massages anymore. And she's right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I used to go get massages two or three times a week. Now, you know, it's probably been months. You know, actually, I did get a sore neck. So I let her, even then, I have to work at letting her give to me. So it is something you do have to make a very conscious effort about to let her be in her masculine and give to you to nurture your feminine.
0: What do you find comes up in men, perhaps in yourself in those situations? I have some awareness, but the massage thing is exactly an experience that I've had, which is if I'm going and I'm paying for a massage at a place, I feel very comfortable. It's one of my favorite things to do. But if someone who loves me is giving me a massage. I can last about five minutes before I need to, oh my God, that was great. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, have, I have to escape that situation. Uh, and it's tough for me to actually let it in and enjoy it. So I'm curious if you have insight into what's, what's occurring under the hood.
1: That's a good question because it's one I've, I've, I've pondered as well. I don't know that I have mm-hmm. all the answers. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of thoughts is that, that there's a certain indebtedness now that, yeah. that we owe them. That's kind of like, oh, I'll do something for them now. Another part is that oh no, I'm trapped. I actually have to sit here until they're done giving to me, and sure. I it, like almost feels like a loss of freedom, like. Mm-hmm. And it, that's kind of a crazy way of looking at it, but you know, kind of going back to you know my, my mother issues that you know if I started listening to mom talk or if she's you know taking me shopping, I now am trapped listening to her talk the entire time. There's no escape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's part mm-hmm. of it. There might be another part that I'm trying not to be like my father, who was kind of narcissistic and selfish and the world revolved around him. So if, if, I, if, if, I, if I let her give too much to me, that might start being like, i start being like my dad and everything's about me and I'm selfish. So part of it may be unconsciously, you're trying to be different from somebody that you, you think, well, if I let them give to me, that'll make me like
0: them. Um,
1: again, this is one of those things that's going to take a lot of poking under the hood because I haven't figured it completely
0: out. I see see all of those things in mind. I mean, I'm certainly aware of the, um, the indebtedness comes up very quickly. And I try the speed at which I try to relieve myself of guilt. I've realized like one of my most reflexive compulsions is to escape the experience of guilt by returning the favor or doing something. Mm -hmm. And to allow myself to just sit in a guilty feeling has been a very uh illuminating powerful freeing experience i love it and i think yeah and and similarly there was a um i've had to learn how to distinguish between ex- like help you talked about caring versus caretaking, right. um and i think a- and there by were times the way my, i gotta say this yeah. in
1: no more mr nice guy about yeah. six years ago they kind of did a little update. They didn't really change much. I wrote a preface for it. They they, they corrected a few errors. They made a, mu- a few <laughs> errors new that they haven't actually fixed yet. Oh, so no. <laughs> in the print version, and I didn't notice this, so I went back to reread the audible version and I'm reading it in the sound booth in New York. And I come to this part and I'm going, wait a minute. That's not, and, and what it is, there's, there's a, a two images, two graphs next to each other of like three traits of caring and three traits of caretaking, they got them reversed.
0: Reversed. They're reversed. <laughs> so just you, you know, go back and read. I've got the Kindle. I've got the Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll, the maybe it'll make We're sense good.
1: now.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, but, but regardless of what they're titled, I think the distinction is powerful of, you know, in, in this, uh, the caring, caretaking you have is it's given because the person who is giving needs to give it. Yeah. It's what they need to give. Uh, and I think there were times in my life, not all I was well supported, but where the love that I received was of that caretaking variety. It was a gift that my mother needed to give me. It was not what I needed at the time. And I think that is also activated when I'm receiving a massage and it's not that great. And it's like, I'm supposed to sit here and be really grateful for this massage that is not actually helping my neck or back loosen. And I've noticed that and go, oh, wow, you know could you watch a YouTube video on this and then come back <laughs> and try to give me a massage?
1: And, and you, Because we're afraid that will make us some kind of ass, some kind of ungrateful yeah, yeah. person for this thing. Exactly. But if, <laughs> if you even think about it, because underneath it implies whatever they're giving to you has strings attached, which makes mm-hmm. sense because the nice guy covert contracts all have strings attached. You're giving mm-hmm. a massage because you're hoping that, you know, it'll relax her enough that, you know, she might take her shirt off you know there's strings mm-hmm. attached so we mm-hmm. assume and especially if maybe our parents or caregivers also gave us strings attached because they got value from from that giving um we do feel indebted like we do owe them something now and so mm-hmm. and one of the things we might owe them is to kind of not complain <laughs> to be kind sure to not ask them to stop or not be appreciative yeah, be yeah. appreciative
0: yeah, that's powerful. You mentioned uh one thing that I want to talk about is um how how nice guys in the book and I think you said it in this conversation have shame around sexuality in particular. Yeah. And I don't know how many very young men you've talked to like the Gen Z, but it seems that it's gotten even intensified. So I've like the fear of rejection, of approach, yeah. of all of that is at such a level that is stunning to even me because the worst thing that happened in my time, you go up and it was a, it was a private shame that maybe some of the people in the room saw that you approached her and it didn't go well. Now there's a incentive to put it on the internet. and This guy came up and said this thing and it was so creepy and so weird or whatever. And so there's this fear that I've seen in like 23 year olds and younger that is beyond anything I experienced. And so I'm curious, like, it sounds like our society is adding to that, (laughs) the tendency at which people might have this, this issue and the syndrome crop up in their life. I'm I'm curious if you've seen that. Yeah,
1: um, I'm I'm thinking of several different ways to, to, to come at Mm -hmm. this. Um, Let's talk about sexual shame for a minute. Yeah. And let's bring it, come back to that piece. Um, You know, we, we live in a culture that just bombards everybody with sexual shame. You know, Mm -hmm. American culture is still very puritanical. Um, You know, sex is evil, sex is sinful. You know, without getting into a political debate, why is prostitution, why is two adults agreeing to a sexual contract a crime, right? That's Mm -hmm. only a crime, not because it's criminal behavior, it's a crime because of religious influences, this lingered on. That's just an example of how religious Influence around sex being evil. I grew up in fundamental Christian church. I actually have two degrees in religion. I was a a minister for eight years. I was taught sex is dirty, evil, and sinful, so save it for the one you love. So, you know, okay. (laughs) But at the same time, we live in a culture that bombards us with sexual stimuli. You know, movies, commercials, music, videos, everything is sexualized. Social media, everything is sexualized. But we're still told, you're bad. You're bad for being a sexual Mm -hmm. person. So pretty much everybody in most cultures internalize a fair amount of sexual shame. One of the things that I do in a lot of my workshops is I ask people, think back to your first sexual memory. And you know, this could be anything. It could be for boys, you know, their first erection, first wet dream, first kiss, first I showed you mine, you show me yours, first abuse. You know, it could be whatever comes to mind. And then I, I asked people, all right, whatever that was, your first wet dream, first kiss, first time somebody touched your, your genitals, you touched genitals, whatever, was it in the open? Could you talk about it? Could you go tell your parents about it? You know, did, did it feel good and could, you know, hey, this is great? You know, I, I said, could you go tell your parents and they say, that's fantastic, let's go get pizza because that's a developmental milestone you just passed. Mm. No, everybody. 100% of people saying, no, oh, first sexual memory I have, it was hidden. It was secretive. I didn't tell anybody. I thought I was bad. I thought I was going to get in trouble. Yeah. And, and then if you cross that with, and it felt good, mm-hmm. th- that's yeah. where, then you get sexuality, the pleasure of sexuality gets crosswired with guilt and shame and secrecy and badness and punishment. And most of us then go through adolescence, because this happens before adolescence for most of us. With that crosswiring of sex being crosswired to hidden, secretive, shameful, bad stuff that just gets you know it just gets <laughs> compounded, compounded into adulthood. So most people reach adulthood, you know, with most of our sexuality hidden and, and repressed, and not particularly in the open. Then when we you know, when we have social media, you know, we have the hashtag me too, you know, we've got that if a guy does anything. That any woman feels any degree of discomfort with, it 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 must have been abusive. It must have been violating, and I'm not trying to be dismissive because a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people do do some pretty violating things. So I'm not trying to be dismissive, but what happens is if every little boy thinks I'm going to get called out if I do anything wrong, you know, I I, I don't know about you, but I, I remember, you know. Taking a girl to a movie on a date. I'm inexperienced. I'm maybe 15. And, you know, I don't know what you do at a movie on a date other than, you know, she seems to like me and I seem to like hers. I put an arm around her till my arm falls asleep because I don't think I I can move it. And, you know, maybe you kind of reach out and see if you can touch the side of her breast and see that does she have any reaction to that? You know, I I guess that's how maybe most people kind of did it. And nowadays, I think that would be, you know, like, Evil, you know, totally Mm -hmm. off limits. You know, now I'm I'm also a big fan. You know, especially with uh, older teens and adults, when you are being overtly sexual, have a conversation. You know about you know about STDs, about protection, about pregnancy, about what this act means to people, and don't do it drunk. I I tell guys Mm -hmm. all the time, do not have sex if you or she are drunk because it's it's opening. All kind of a pin. Now, if you're in a long-term relationship and the two of you both agreed you like being high or being drunk while having sex, that's fine. But but early, no, don't do that because there's so many things. You know, a woman can say, you know, I w- I was drunk, and next thing I know, he did that, and the guy's going, mm. no, wait a minute, you were doing this and touching me, but it's you know her word. So yeah, boys do get really really uncomfortable with that, and. The only answer I have is probably not a workable answer. Um, I tell young men all the time, nobody ever does it, is get off social media. Um, Mm. I I think social media, number one, is very feminizing. You know, anything that gets you concerned about likes and having a lot of followers and people this, Mm. that's all feminine.
0: That's very interesting. I'll ask guys, after
1: you've been on social media doing this, how productive do you
0: feel afterwards? I mean, how productive does social media make you? productivity and how attached how attached to yourself do you feel i mean you attached probably to like who you might be for other people or what you could do what you could take a photo of or like yeah but how much of that own if you were to just sit for a full day out in nature and think about what you wanted to make or feel what you wanted to make it probably is very far away from where you are after a a couple hours scrolling scrolling. and
1: i I, i've never liked social media since you know Mm -hmm. Twenty years ago when you know clients Robert you need to get on Facebook, you need to get on Facebook I said, no I don't no I don't mm. I've been on Facebook I've been on Instagram x or actually I've never been on Instagram but on Twitter now x mm. uh, years ago i I never saw any value in them. The only value I can see in anything on social media is like Facebook groups you know like when mm. I bought a, <laughs> when I bought an older Mercedes, I found a Facebook
0: group it made when I found yeah, it, yeah. when I
1: bought an RV I found a Facebook group. But I don't like Facebook because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg steals all your data. So yeah. I, I'm not on social media. And because of that, I don't worry near as much of what people might say about me. I know, sure. you know I, 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 I re- highly respect Jordan Peterson. And, but he's like on social media all the time and always, he's always in a battle, always in a battle, always
0: in a battle. And it's, and it's had an impact on him. It, it's has. Ha- it's, it has taken him away, in my opinion, from his best work. Yeah. You know, the, the reactivity to, I said this on Twitter, they did this to me because of what I said on Twitter is like, God, go, go take the years that it takes to come up with some of those books and insights and ideas that, that to me, that was. Uh, the most interesting, valuable part of what he did, not the culture war yeah. stuff.
1: So, and again, that's just just my opinion. I highly respect him. You know, I've, I've I've been interviewed by his daughter. I mean, I love sure. the work Similar. that he does.
0: Um, yeah.
1: But I don't know that's going to solve any, you know, 12, 14, 15-year-old boy's problem is getting completely off social media.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't know. It's, it, I, I don't have any other great ideas uh, other than, because I teach, I teach men, don't, don't be cautious, don't hold back. I teach men, you know, blurt, you know, act on impulse, touch, tease, tell, be very interactive. But again, I'm mainly teaching men that, that haven't grown up in the last 10 to 15 years of the school system where anything that's offensive to anybody is, is abuse. Um, yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't actually have an answer for the way through that.
0: okay so we already had this issue with sexual shame and now what we're saying is yeah it's going to get layered on perhaps even more and the experiences of uh feeling liberated free in interactions especially early in your life are going to be very few and far between for young people so how do we unwire that sexual shame where it's you know it was a secretive thing that i never talked about all this and it felt good if i look at my own self i see wow i i I, it's only, again, recently that I'm realizing the level of disconnection to my body that I'll have in a sexual experience. Yeah. Um, so how does that, how do we work on unwiring that coming back and not having that shame be such a, an integral part of what we connect with those experiences? Okay. L-
1: let me approach this twofold because there might be a piece that actually can also help that previous question, but you know, they're, sure. they're very much related. Um, one of the things I say, in no more, Mr. Nice guy is don't try to do this alone. Don't try to break free from nice guy syndrome on your own. You didn't become a nice guy in social social isolation. You won't break free in social isolation. I began my, what I call my recovery journey uh, by going to a 12 step group for sexual addiction. I, excuse me, quickly realized I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex uh, to be a sex addict. Even <laughs> I wanna have sex with my wife. And she kept saying, you're a sex addict. I go, well, we had a lot of
0: sex before we got married. Now we don't. Um, so I, I went, can you, I, I, can I pause you for one second? I think that is such a common frame that occurs with nice guys, which is the, at least I, I, what I thought my problem was. And what the actual problem was, I was like, if only I could be more receptive to feedback from other people, that would, that would solve everything. Yeah. And it's similar to what you're describing yeah. is I thought that I was this pushy sex addict. <laughs> and what I was in was a marriage where we weren't connecting at that level. I find that so fascinating. Yeah. And I think deeply true for a lot of and people. And
1: I'm so grateful for it because you know, I landed yeah. in a 12-step group for sex addicts, quickly learned I wasn't a sex addict, but it was all guys. Yeah. So it was my first men's group. And, and most of them needed to be there. They, they had... They had mm-hmm. some gnarly shit going on. And I'd, I'd, I'd share and they'd probably go, uh, thanks for sharing, Robert. Why are you here? You know, um, but for the first time in my life, be, I, I came aware of what toxic shame was and what it felt like to start revealing it. And in the process to speak it out loud and, and to go through that cathartic experience and to get feedback from people that had no judgment of me and then didn't mm-hmm. think I was bad. Around that time, I also started working with a therapist, a woman therapist. I'd, I'd go to go to my twelve step group and reveal stuff I'd never revealed to anybody. Again, remember, I grew up in fundamental Christian church, critical, angry father, angry feminism of the sixties. I had plenty of, of shame tucked down there. I'd go mm-hmm. to a therapist and I'd put stuff out. She goes, "Well, let's explore that. See what it means." I go, "Oh, you're not shocked?" No. Mm-hmm. I got into a men's group, and you know, just kept doing that that work. So. The only way I know to really do the deep work around sexual shame is to do it with other safe people. It'd be great if you could do it on your own. Journal writing can be helpful. You know, you can do some dream work maybe. You can You probably do some stuff, but you really do have to go be around people where you reveal things you don't want to reveal. Mm. And release what you've been hiding. Find out that the people don't all have nervous breakdowns and and that they actually give you more accurate affirmations um i remember i'll I'll just give this an example my second wife who said you need to go get into therapy because prior to being married she liked having sex on her honeymoon she said now that we're married aren't you glad we don't have to pretend to like sex anymore i said wait a minute i wasn't pretending so Mm. about two years later you know I, i acted out she says you need to go get help so i went and got help and Something came up after I was already going to this 12 step group, working with a therapist, and it was a sexual impulse. And it was, it was kind of a dark sexual impulse and it scared me. I didn't act on it, but in the past, I would have just pushed that way down, even from my own mm-hmm. kind of consciousness. And so I went to my 12 step group and I shared it. I just said, Thanks for sharing, Robert. And, uh, oh, okay, that wasn't bad. I went to my therapist and I shared it. She said, Well, let's kind of explore and see what that's about. I said, Okay. Wasn't bad. So I'm driving home and I'm thinking, all right, I'm batting a thousand, two for two. You know, I need to go tell my wife this. And I used to tell my wife her middle name ought to be Overreact because that's what she did in every situation. She never actually overreacted to that because she knew it was true. I went home, told her exactly the impulse I'd had, that I told it to my 12 step group, I told it to my therapist, and I told it to her. And she looked at me and she said, that kind of concerns me, doesn't surprise me. And, uh, Thank you for telling me. And she never brought it up again. Mm. And I thought, wow, how come no one told me this a long time ago that you can actually find safe people, go reveal the things you think make you a bad person that make you ugly, evil, sinful, not good enough. Go reveal it, get positive feedback. Then you can start revealing that through word, action, just how you live to, to everybody else on the planet. -hmm. And realize Mm -hmm. not everybody's going to think you're amazing, but you're not going to be near as offensive to near as many people as you think you are. That's when we get to be real and people get to respond to that realness. That, that, to me, that's what the, what charisma is. You're being Mm -hmm. you. You're not holding anything you about you, but you, you have to go do that in a safe place. I don't know any other way around
0: it. What? How can we identify safe places? Because I know that some people, I, I feel very fortunate to have had opportunities to do that, that were safe. Uh, and I know that not every place is safe for that. In fact, you could share that with someone, even a terrible therapist who's like, oh my God, this is horrible. We need to report you to the authorities. <laughs> or like, So how how can we start to feel through what would be a safe place That's a good question. For that?
1: I, I, I tell people, um, begin with... The list of people who are not on the list is family and, and, mm-hmm. and your girlfriend or <laughs> okay. your wife. Because, you know, they might be shocked. You know, they, they might mm-hmm. be shaming, because most of us probably have at some point been shamed by people who said they loved us. We yeah. need to go find people who have no investment in, you know, us having investment and them having to like us and think we're good and 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 they're professionally trained. To to you know to recognize what is the revelation of shame, uh, you know I'd highly recommend a therapist. Twelve step groups can fall into that. Uh, men's groups, um, coaching, you know I think would fall into it. One problem with the coaching world is that there's no like real requirements for a coach to be a coach, and um, I'll come back to how maybe you can test any of these people. Um, it could be a, men, a minister or a rabbi. Unfortunately, I'm not single ministers or rabbis, but I've known plenty of people in therapy um, told me yeah. that I told my, my abuse to so-and-so and got abused all over again, either yeah. verbally or physically abused again. Oof. So there is a vulnerability, especially if you're revealing abuse issues that sometimes predators do take advantage of that. So here's my best test. This isn't just like testing, you know, with a therapist or a group. I would recommend this like in in a relationship, friendship, uh, interpersonal relationships. It's a stair-step method where you reveal a little bit about you and then mm-hmm. test. See what the people do with it. Reveal a little bit about you, test. Reveal, test. Don't just gush out your whole life story. Don't hold mm-hmm. everything back to where nobody gets to know you. With new people, practice revealing little parts about it. See, do do they respect it? Do they hold it in confidence? Do they share mm-hmm. reciprocally? Do they kind of match your share with their own personal share? If after a few of these tests, you either find out they gossiped about you or they shamed you or you know they, they did something negative, or they never reciprocally share back, I'd quit revealing to those people. They're, they're not safe yeah. people. So that's the test I would put in any situation, whether it's a new friend, uh, a girl you're dating, guy you're dating, um, a therapist you're seeing, coach you're working with, men's group you're in. Share, test, share, test, share, test. And especially if like you're in a group or something like that, are other people in that group also sharing and revealing in 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 similar kind of ways? So mm-hmm. it's, it's a process you can actually be conscious of. Of how to yeah. go about
0: sharing? Yeah, I love that. I think those are all great things. I I think I was lucky enough to instinctively do some of that, and then what I've developed, having done that, is a, a sense of if I'm being seen or not in a relationship yeah. and in an interaction, which I can I can feel it. I can feel if somebody's projecting onto me their issue or if they are seeing and receiving me, which is uh, not a capacity that I had. Three, four, five years ago, if they projected onto me, I was like, they're seeing me. This is a horrible thing that is about me when really they you might just have activated some shame in them by opening up about something they have encountered. And and, and,
1: and we all do that with each other without knowing it. That's one actually one of the beauties of conscious relationships is knowing Say so you and your partner, you're going to project stuff onto each other from your past experiences. You're going to bring up your defense mechanisms from your past experiences. If you know that's going to happen, you guys can watch them and be the observer of mm-hmm. them. And especially maybe if you have outside help to help you watch them and observe them, because sometimes they're harder for us to see in ourselves. But that's why mm-hmm. relationships can be so so dynamic and so powerful, is that, a, is that knowing we all are projecting old stuff on our partner. All the time. Yeah. And if yeah. we just know that it kind of lets you work with
0: it. Yeah. One thing that I, uh, that is coming up, I was just reviewing uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy and I was going through my highlights. And you tell one story. I think we can think of projections sometimes as, you know, I'm projecting the bad things, but sometimes we can project our power onto other people. So it's one of the stories that you tell is about a guy who was trying to get sex from his wife, trying to get sex from his wife. And your advice to him was go on a six month moratorium. Yeah no sex, reclaim your own sexual contact with yourself. So you can still be sexual inside of your own body. You can still, you know, feel good yourself, but you are not going to seek that in her. And if you'd like, you can tell the story because I think I, it's well, I think I'm it's smiling because that was about me. Yeah. Um, you know. Oh, that was yeah. about you. That story was you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Why did you say that? So? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: will say, I don't hold anything back. In the yeah, book, yeah. I often tell people, no more Mr Nice Guy is my autobiography. I just use I just okay. use other people's names to tell my story. Now, <laughs> that's not completely true. The majority of the people in the book are are a real life person or a combination of two or three people. Mm. But there's one person in there that's a lot me. Not exactly, okay. but a lot me. Got it. During my marriage to my second wife who on our honeymoon said <laughs> we don't have to okay. put into like sex. We yeah. got into therapy. And into couples therapy together. And no matter what I did, no matter how much I worked on me and did my stuff, she still wasn't sexually available. And it became just, you know, just ongoing battle. You know, I was constantly frustrated and resentful and, you know, manipulative. And, and she was constantly angry and withdrawn. And, you know, it just it wasn't going well. And uh, our therapist suggested it. And I, I did two different sexual moratoriums. And most people go, why would I do that? But you know what? It was one of the most empowering things I'd done, both of them. They came at different times mm-hmm. in the relationship where, you know, just I made a decision. Uh, I, I've never been into porn or excessive masturbation, mm-hmm. but that was off the table. No passionate interplay with my wife, no flirting with anybody else, uh, you know, no no intrigue with anybody. Uh, my wife and I could give each other a hug and a goodbye kiss, night, kiss, but that was it. The second time I did it, I actually moved to a completely different bedroom, different bed. And a few things came out. What was interesting is when, you know, as soon the very day that I began sexual moratoriums, both times, my wife became overtly sexual, you know, Mm. being seductive. I won't go into details, but just like, what the hell, you know, why can't Mm. you be this? But, you know, she became seductive and And of course, okay, finally, she's being seductive. She's being sexually available. But it was a dance that we had, right? As long as I Mm was pursuing, she could go like that. When I quit pursuing, she went into her her mode, which is part of her story without going into that detail. But the most powerful thing for me, well, two two other powerful things. One is it really helped me break free of a lot of my nice guy stuff. Because a lot of nice guy stuff is tied to, I'll be nice to women so they'll have sex with me. If I'm not trying to get a woman to have sex with me, I don't have to fucking be nice to her. Now, I don't mean that in a mean, abusive way. I didn't have to give too many fucks of, is she upset? Is she going to like thats that? that going to bother her. You know, is she in a bad mood? Because so I thought I, I don't have to do what I call maintaining the possibility of availability. Right. I don't have to do anything to make sure she's in a good mood later on wants to have sex. She can be in a bad mood because we ain't having sex for six months. So I don't even have mm-hmm. to worry about it. I became a much more integrated man. You know, the, that's, that's what I talk about is we move out of nice guy syndrome, it's about becoming integrated. I became more honest, more real, making my needs a priority, going where I wanted, hanging out with what I wanted, doing what I wanted to do without this fear of she might be upset about it. So I yeah. became much more authentic and integrated, which actually made me more attractive to her. The second thing is that it reclaimed, in a sense, the keys to my sexuality that I realized that I did not have to give the power over my sexuality to another human being. Nobody yeah. had control of whether or not I got to have sex, how I had sex, when I had sex. That was not the keys I was going to give to any other human being. Those are, that was my keys under my control. So that was very mm-hmm. empowering as well.
0: How did you relate? So you, I didn't realize you weren't allowed to masturbate or anything like that for that six yeah. months. How did you relate to your own sexual energy without repressing it because i know there there is a way of doing that which is the old traditional catholic way which is i have an urge push it down push (laughs) it down push it down and i'm learning that there is a way to relate to that energy that is uh still pleasant and pleasurable without you know expressing it via sexual contact you know
1: i i think i'll start with misperceptions i think uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of guys especially when you're young Yeah. You do. Most young men do a pretty strong sex drive. It's built, it's built into us. Mother nature likes young men having strong sex drive. Mm -hmm. But I think most of us overestimate our need for sex and especially our need for ejaculation. And one of the things I would, I see, I think in a lot of men that I work with young and old is that a lot of men have, I I call it an addiction to ejaculation. You know, I think Mm -hmm. porn addiction is rampant. A lot of men, you know, You know, in my day, you had to find your father's playboy or hustler stuck under the mattress somewhere. Yeah, My son and stepson, they're both 38 now, grew up with broadband internet where, you know, they could just go get it anywhere. And so, of course, we have a generation of men that just have that instant access to sexual stimuli. And most of us live in a fantasy world, you know. Our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers maybe saw three pretty women in their lifetime and maybe never saw any of them naked. You know, you Mm -hmm. and I have seen multitudes of pretty women and lots of them naked, right? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, it's kind of like we everything's different. So what's happened is men, I think, have become hypersexual, for lack of a better term, and especially addicted to ejaculation where everything is focused on on, I got to come, I got to come, I got to come. And one of the things that happens if you do a sexual moratorium, the first week or two for most men, it's not bad. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not bad. Second couple of weeks, eh, it gets tough. All of a sudden it's just, you got all kinds of impulses going on. Um, and, and that's usually where most of the slips occur about week two through through week three, week four getting to the other side of that and this was even before i knew about macrocircular breathing and you know things like that when talking about that once you get to the other side if you've taken you know physical contact flirting fantasy pornography and even habitual masturbation out of the picture most men's sex drives actually kind of calm down they have mm-hmm. because there's nothing keeping them stimulated right granted yeah, you can still true. walk down the street and just you know Go to the mall, women walking by in their little lemon and whatever. You know, there's still plenty. To, you know, to keep your, your rubberneck and all that. But even if you if you cut that out, and and you know, Freud and many other psychiatrists have talked about sublimating our sex drive into in yeah. action and into productivity. So one thing we can do is we can take that energy drive. You know, most most Eastern religions, Eastern thought, really discourage men from ejaculation. And you know, they even have charts of at this age, you should only ejaculate every so, this many months. And my age is like, never, <laughs> I should <laughs> never ejaculate um, because you're, you're dispelling your chi, your life force, your energy, and we need that chi. We only have so much to put into our, our you know, our, our mission, our purpose, uh, our karma, and what we're supposed to be getting done in life. So we can sublimate sexual energy into productive activity, especially if we've cut out all those ways we go especially if we've cut the shame compartment out of sex. Here's where m- men get most of their sexual hit is going into what I call a shame compartment. Remember, shame got crosswired to sex. So, you know, having a fantasy while we're having sex with our girlfriend about somebody else, well, we feel shame about it, but it's arousing. Yeah. Sneaking off to look at porn where, nobody, where we might get caught, might get found out, it's arousing. So if we can get out of those shame compartments, clean up our sexuality, but just get it clean. Mm-hmm. It'll you'll see that it'll ebb. It'll kind of have, it'll you'll you'll start noticing when it just has little ups and downs, to, and you'll start. Hmm, I'm feeling a little aroused right now, and you can say, "Hmm, I wonder why," and you can kind of get in touch with some thought you had or a stimulus, or somebody walked by, and and you can start paying attention to it, and then just go, "Okay, you, you notice it."
0: I think that's you know what's clicking with me is that there's uh. Online communities of no fat you might be familiar, which is about not ejaculating. Sure. and and I see in that the thing that is is really sticking is that I in some strains of that community, they're shame driven. It's like, I have to oh, do yeah. this because I'm so ashamed. And it's whether you're doing it or not doing it, if the driver is this toxic shame that you're yeah. trying to repress down and control and steer, you're gonna have an outcome that is not one that I'm interested in versus yeah. if you can find a way to release the shame, friend the shame you know share it with safe people and and do that process and then make a decision to whatever yeah. know, that make that a decision seems... that
1: works for you I, I agree I agree hundred yeah. percent with that because
0: yeah the, that
1: first 12-step group I landed in was a 12-step group that had a really rigid definition of sobriety uh, you could only mm. have sex in in a heterosexual marriage and no masturbation mm. and no gay sex and it, it was too much like my fundamental religion so I only Aid yep. stayed in that particular group for a little while. It was a good start. And then later I found other groups that, you know, let me define my own sobriety. What does it mean for me to be sexually sober? And without the shame attached to it, that there's badness somehow in all of this. So yeah, anything that men can do to clean out that sexual shame, I find does a lot, believe it or not, to, um, this is not going to sound good to a lot of guys to actually level out the sex drive. If you take the shame out of it, it just becomes more like appetite, you know? Okay. I'm hungry now. I'm not, I'm not hungry now. You know, you know, if, think about it, if, if, if we, if we ate like most young men, most men do sex, every opportunity to eat, we'd be eating because I can't miss this opportunity. Right. And I better do it in secret where nobody's going to see me eating. You know, but that's how we do our sex drive. Oh, this is an opportunity. I better take it now. You know, I may not have one later. And so hmm. if you take all that shame out of it and, and and we give the ownership back to us, we are the owners of our sexuality. Nobody gets to shame us. Nobody gets to tell us we're bad. Nobody gets to say, you can't do this. When you can do this, we get to be the owner of that. Um, you know, towards the end of my marriage to my second wife, we'd been in quite a bit of therapy. And towards the end, After, you know, doing a couple of sexual moratoriums and doing a lot of work, I announced to her and my therapist, who was a woman, I said, I am going to have sex. Just because you don't want to have sex doesn't mean I shouldn't have sex. And I said, I'm going to say yes to sexual opportunities. I prefer it be with you. If it's not, I'll say yes to other opportunities. And both she and the therapist nodded their head like, how do you argue with that? If she, she didn't want to have sex, why did that mean I shouldn't? So that was a powerful act for me to claim my sexuality as my own, to be overt about it, to be empowered with it to not have anything hidden, no lies, no secrets. This is totally in the open and it's mine and that was yeah. really
0: empowering I think that that framework is very powerful for any need, and it's tough sometimes to to really f- know one's needs in a relationship, but to say like look, this is a need of mine in life. And I think you come to really relate to those as you get older and you know what is a negotiable and a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. But I'd prefer that this exists in the context with you. I've chosen you. I'd like it to be with you. But I need to find a way to meet this. And if not with you, then... With someone else, and that could be. I need to get out in nature, I'd prefer to take a walk with you, yeah. but I'm going to take a walk with the boys, and I'm not going to let you say, No, you can't do that. It can be, you know, any sort of need. I have a need to solve a problem and do a puzzle, and I'd prefer to do that puzzle with you, but I can also do it on my own. But uh, I think that way of relating to needs is very important and powerful. Well,
1: and I think what you're describing, I'm going to guess, it's just a guess. When you talk about your, when you're in relationship over time, how nice guy Mm -hmm. stuff starts coming in, if I had to guess, it probably does take the form of you giving up or repressing more and more of your needs Mm -hmm. and perhaps giving up more and more of your freedom. And we don't know that's that's, happening. We don't know it's happening other than we notice when we start getting frustrated. When we start feeling resentful when we start lashing out at the other that it's their fault that we're not happy or we're not getting what we want usually that's happened because over a long period of time we either didn't want to rock the boat we didn't want to upset them we didn't want a negative reaction we just oh it's easier just go read a book or just go watch tv or just go watch some porn or just pass on it this time my my, my buddies can go without me you know we, we start making those sacrifices over time to go along to get along, and we don't mm-hmm. notice we're doing it until we enough of them pile up that that we start lashing out usually for what happens or we start acting out we start engaging in hidden secretive destructive behavior all of a sudden we notice oh we're on social media flirting you know with some woman that re-, you know why are we doing that probably mm-hmm. because we went too long without being clear about what we need in, in our a yeah.
0: relationship. Yeah, in my particular flavor of it, it would come up just as a for instance, like I would be playing video games, my girlfriend comes over and I don't stand up to give her a kiss at the door. And that becomes a, "Well, why aren't you giving me a kiss at the door?" And so I the way that I learned to defend my needs was by being incredibly rigid and uncompromising of <laughs> here's I am not going to give an inch on this because if I give an inch, I dissolve in a road and I lose myself in this yeah. relationship, which made me do silly things like not be able and to I'm give not my girlfriend. open her door either. Don't <laughs> yes, make exactly. me open her door. I won't do it. <laughs> a level of stubbornness that is refl- of a deep belief that, like, if I give you an inch, I'll lose the whole sure. mile. And not that you'll take it from me, but that I'll just give it up. And so for me, it's been identifying what are the needs and what are the, oh, yeah, sure, I can open the door or I can, I can stand up and greet you when you get in here. Um, and, and you know, you it's important even, to me that. You know, <laughs> I'm in my office.
1: My wife just came by uh, and, and waved because yeah. she's been out and, and, Nala left, the dog left, um, mm. you know, if I'm in my office where I am most of the time, and, you know, she comes in, there's French doors there, you know, she'll usually knock and kind of open the door, and they come on in and, and, you know, I I, I have this playful rule, you know, whatever I'm doing, if I'm on the computer, if I'm on my laptop, on the couch, or sitting here at my desk on the computer, I'll make her come over, I'll stop, What I'll tell her, give me a minute, you know, I'll finish, turn to her, what do you need, what do you want, listen to her, and before she goes, she has to give me a kiss. So that's the rules. Like if she comes in and says, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go run this errand, run this errand, I don't have any money. And I'll go, okay, I'll get you some money, but first you gotta come give me a kiss. So <laughs> you can play with it to to where you're still kind of playfully setting that tone. She has a need to be kissed. And you have a need to not interrupt your video game. So you can say, Come over here, baby, come over. Here. I'm about to kill somebody. Give me the kiss. Give me the kiss. <laughs> you know, get playful with it to where mm-hmm. you can speak her love language. Without you thinking you have to give up you, because because I think what you've found, we can go to two extremes. We can give up everything that's important to us and just become a nothing, you know, and thinking we're doing it for them. Or you like you said, we become so rigid about it mm-hmm. that there's no way in hell I'm I'm giving this one up. And, and mm-hmm. the truth is, let me let me bounce into a whole whole related new subject, something called differentiation. I think differentiation concepts of differentiation and fusion are two of the most powerful concepts in relationships. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. other than a a guy named Murray Bowen many years ago and David Snarch since him, people aren't talking a lot about differentiation and fusion. Fusion is where you give up you to be a part of the relationship. And -hmm. this is like, you know, being absorbed into the board, you know, the matrix, whatever you lose you for the sake of some other person or the relationship. Differentiation is the ability to still be you, a whole independent person, then be them, a whole independent person, and connect with each other in mutually interdependent ways without having to lose self to be connected. Mm. Powerful concept. So children in families don't get differentiation encouraged. When, they're, when a child's brain starts developing around two years old and they start developing an identity of self and they can talk, they're a little mobile and they start saying, no, myself, things like that. What do we call that phase in children?
0: Terrible, terrible twos. twos. <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah. We
1: call it the terrible twos because a little person is differentiating in ways the big person doesn't want and because the big person yeah. makes the rules, that's terrible. The truth is, is perfect. The child should be differentiating and express their wants. Just because they're in sometimes uh, opposition to the wants of the big people, big people always win. Children Mm. are not encouraged to differentiate. They're encouraged to go along, get along, follow the rules of family, school, religion, society. So we are not taught differentiation as adults. The big people can do whatever they want to the little people. So. What children do, they go one of two routes because they can't ask themselves. Differentiation is the ability to ask yourself, what do I want? What feels right to me? And then do it in spite of change back messages from people around us or Mm -hmm. the guilt, neurotic guilt, anxiety between our ears. It says, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm bad. So Mm. an integrated, authentic person asks, what do I want? What feels right? And then we do it. Okay. That's differentiation. Because children can't do that, they tend to go one route or the other. One route is they hide whatever they don't want to be known about, go along to get along. This is often the I'm so good, nice guy. He goes, well, I'm gonna do this, but I'll ask for forgiveness, not permission, or I'll just hide it and not, don't get found out. Or, I'll just repress it, right? That's the, the, the one way of just hiding, to go along, to get along. The other is called oppositionally defiant. Well, mm-hmm. you know, if I do it your way, I lose, you win, I don't exist. So I will do the opposite of what you want, the big people. And I'll even cut off my nose to spite my face. You know, if you Mm -hmm. want me to go to college, by God, I'm gonna flunk out of 10th grade. If you want me to be sexually pure, I'm gonna (laughs) every loser in the neighborhood. You know, you go the opposite direction. And most of us then reach adulthood going one of those two things because nobody ever taught us. No, this is where you ask yourself, what do you want? And then you do it openly without Defending yourself without excuse. So it's so easy to do what you said you do. We either give ourselves up, go along, mm-hmm. get resentful, hide everything, or we get oppositionally defiant. No way in hell am I getting up to give you a kiss? Ain't going to happen. Yeah. Ain't going to open your door, baby. It'd be a cold whole day in hell before your door gets open.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: neither one of them serve us.
0: And neither one is connected to self. They're both in reaction exactly. to what is being asked of exactly. you. Exactly. And if our, I'm going to fight and I'm going to uh, acquiesce too, but there's no, well, here I am. This is the version of life I want. I want to.
1: Here's what yeah. I would like. Because nobody mm-hmm. taught us to do that in cho- yeah. as children. In fused, educational systems are fused, religious mm-hmm. systems, governmental, cultural. They're all fused because they all, the big powerful people like controlling the little people that don't have power. That's just kind of the nature yeah. of the world. So I, you can watch those patterns in yourself. Am I being, you know, like rigid, you know, a rigid asshole for no reason, even where I'm hurting myself because I'm so bound to not give in? And then ask yourself, what do I really want? And then see yeah. if you can have a discussion with the other person, whoever it might be, about how maybe both of us can increase the odds of getting something that makes us both feel good.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's a very creative act because the belief that has kept me away from what do I want is... Well, if I give what I want, nobody else is going to want that. But if I actually open up and go, well, what would I like? It's like, well, I, of course, I love my girlfriend, and I want to, you know, and I want to find time that is connected and close and loving between the two of us. And also, I want to feel autonomy to like finish the thing that I'm doing okay. and not be interrupted and not feel like I'm whipped by my girlfriend. Sorry, guys, got to, go. you know, like. And so there's there's a version of reality where what I want exactly is or not exactly beautifully coincides and dovetails with yeah. what she would like to have happen. But it might not be her first offer to me, which is you got to come stand up and do it this yeah. way. It might be a response to that, which is something else. You know,
1: Nobody's ever going to get everything they want out of any relationship. You know, we, we, we tend infused relationships. It's kind of like, you're my girlfriend, therefore you should. You're my boyfriend, therefore you should. Yeah, and we yeah. don't have other resources. We need lots of different resources. And... Mm-hmm without going into a lot of detail, my relationship with my wife, my side of it is monogamous. I keep all my sexual energy in the relationship. The other part's more complicated, but all my sexual energy stays in the relationship. Traditionally, in most monogamous relationships, that also tends to give mean giving up other freedoms just because you've said, I won't have sex with anybody else but you. That's my tendency, and it's a lot of people's tendency. So for a few years now, I've been working on the mindset of how can I be all the way in a sexually monogamous relationship with my partner and not give up any other personal freedom? Now, that's differentiation, Mm -hmm. right? That's asking myself, what do I want? What's important to me? Mm -hmm. Now, differentiation occurs at two levels. Primary level is one that most people never get to, and that is asking ourselves, what do I want? And then charting a path for that. There's also a second level of differentiation that can only occur if the first level has occurred. The second level of differentiation is what is in the best interest of the people I love, maybe the planet that I live on, where we may decide at some level to even give up certain freedoms or wants, knowingly, consciously giving them up That's, in a context yeah. because we know it will benefit somebody we care about, okay? Mm-hmm. Parents do that with their children all the time. Do you want to yeah. get up at 2 a.m. and sit with your kid when you need to get up and go to work in the morning? No. But you do it because the child the child needs it. You know, yeah. do, you know, are there things we need to do to you know, help our planet be healthy? Yeah. We probably need to do them even if they involve some sacrifice. Again, not trying to get political. But you can't do level two until you do level one. A lot of people want to skip level one and basically yes. just cave- <laughs> cave their way to level two. Oh, oh okay and children, what you yeah. want all right i'll do that i'll give up my video game because i know you blah 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 mm-hmm. so I, I i i one of my jokes you, you said you lived in latin america part of your life
0: right? yeah and yes you, you yes. learned a little
1: spanish right espanol
0: i i used to speak really really okay. well now it's it's mediocre okay
1: well, we'll play a little game how do you say yeah. the word wife in spanish esposa I, what's the plural of wives
0: Means esposas, esposas, I imagine. Okay. Yeah.
1: What's the word for handcuffs in Spanish?
0: Oh, God, I don't even know. It is esposas. Oh, is it?
1: <laughs> you can ask this. I've asked this plenty of first, you know, Spanish is people's, the first language, and, and maybe, but they speak English as well. And you yeah. can ask a Spanish speaker, how do you say wives? Span- you know, esposas. Yeah. How do you say handcuffs? And they just get mm-hmm. this weird look on their face. And I'm like, I never <laughs> thought of that before. How <laughs> come the same word in Spanish for wives and hand the same word? And, and yeah. the point of it is what we call it the ball and chain or whatever. As mm-hmm. soon as you start giving up your wants and desires and needs to go along, to get along, you're going this route now. Not good. Mm-hmm.
0: But as soon as you say, there's no
1: way in hell I'm giving this up, you're going this route. And probably neither one are going to surfer- serve either person's growth in the relationship. Mm. But learning to ask, what do I want? What's important to me? And what's in the best interest of the people that I care about? That's a really mature person who I think is making a real difference in the world.
0: I love that. I love that. I'm only starting to be able to see the possibility to have both myself and a higher order us it had previously and this is why i had such resistance to the committed relationships was like mm-hmm. if i get the higher order us i lose the me so yeah. so i'm not going to do that and it's uh i've had mentors and you know conversations like this that are indicating and i'm feeling it's like oh that doesn't have to be the case
1: and actually That's it's the beauty of the challenge is because yeah. culturally the pressure is to fuse to give up you mm-hmm. i mean not just from the people you get not just the women you get in a relationship with it'll be all of culture sure. give up you like Parents, when are you gonna give us a grandchild? Mm-hmm. That's fusion, right? Give us what yeah, we yeah. want, you know, we wanna be yeah. grandparents. So there's always gonna be that pressure. But the, the beauty of personal evolution always comes when there's an asserting of self in the midst of pressure to conform. Mm. That is why, why humans evolved more than any other species. We have this strong drive towards independence and this strong need for connectedness. Now those two, you know, they can go to one extreme or the other, you know, we can lose ourselves completely for connectedness or we can be the lone wolf and never have any connection. But, but the tension of those two things has created tremendous evolution in the human species. And that's where I say conscious relationships can be such powerful personal growth machines because we do have that tension, how the tension of you being a you. And not giving up anything about you that you you shouldn't have to give up anything important to you to be in a relationship. Why would you do that? But yet, it's what Mm -hmm. we all kind of implicitly, unconsciously agree to. So, how do you Mm -hmm. not give up any part of you, yet still make the needs and wants and desires and maybe love language of this other person a high priority? That's a tension, right? But it's a beautiful tension that if you stay conscious and maybe have some help with it, the two people mm-hmm. involved can really grow.
0: Yeah, it, it's a beautiful question. And already in that, it's like the level of compromise that opens up for me of the things that don't matter that I would be happy to do, the opening of, I don't care about it, that doesn't bother me <laughs> at, <laughs> at all. It's, try it, it's what try it is. It. Yeah. Well, just, just meaning that I would be happy to do all of those things as long as I got to keep myself. Yeah. And the reason that I resist that is I like, go, oh, this is one domino of 100. And so I appreciate the, um, that question. How do I get me? And us is a, is a really powerful yeah. one. Um, beautiful. Well, you've got, you, you mentioned, uh, integration nation, you've had this on your no, shirt, yeah. so I want to make sure we touch on that.
1: Yeah. It is, it's, uh, uh, you know, pe- people say, okay, any place, anything you want to plug. Yeah. Just go to integrationnation.net. It's a men's membership mm. program launched in July, 2023. And I'm, I'm a big fan kind of quickly going back to that one question about young boys. Mm. Why do boys grow up trying to please women? It's natural. We we were born to a a woman who took care of us. We had to please mom. We went to school, had female teachers. We had to please them. Our ancestors, the boys were taken by the mature men, the masterful men, and given a masculine initiation and then moved on from having to please mommy figures in, in their life. Most boys are missing that. Most men are missing that. So I'm a big fan of men having tribe of having connection with other men. And I think that's where we learn how to differentiate, make our wants and needs a priority. And it's the foundation that we build healthy relationships with women on is the connection with men. So I've done my biggest growth while connected with men. And I'm a big fan. So this is my legacy. I've dedicated the next, I've told myself 20 more years, you know, I'm 68. So, okay, 20 more years, I don't need to retire yet. But uh, I'm, I'm just a big fan of giving men the resources they need to be their best selves.
0: So, mm. And so that's, that's a, a group that they can join that is like an online community. To online. Have lots,
1: on lots and lots of features to it. A lot of moving parts to it. So yeah, just integrationnation.net. And there's a little breakdown on the landing page. And just tell them what it's about. And just tell the guys, go check it out.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, if you guys want to check out Integration Nation, and I definitely recommend. I've not done that, but no more Mister Nice Guy. Like I said, I've read a couple of times already. There it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get the 2016 version with the reverse carrying yeah, and caretaker. If you, if you do, <laughs> just you know get
1: the yellow marker and you know cross them.
0: <laughs> beautiful. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. This, this has, has been, amazing. been
1: fun. It's been a blast. I appreciate it.